Hi, this is Chris Kipp, lead pastor of Renaissance Church in Richmond, Texas. Thank you for streaming or downloading this podcast today. I hope this resource blesses you. If you haven't joined us at a worship gathering or at a house church yet, we want you to come. You can find all that information and more at rin-church.org. I pray that you are encouraged today by the proclamation of God's word. Hello, my name is Chris Kipp, and I'm broken. I remember when I was a young kiddo, I was on the playground one day after school. I was in elementary school. I don't know exactly what grade I was in. And uh, the school that I was at had uh, teams visiting from other schools. That were, they were there for a sporting event or something like that after school. And I was playing on the monkey bars. So if you can picture like a small version of me uh, climbing up and down the monkey bars and, and I would get up on the very top of the monkey bars, right? And while I was up there, some other kids came onto the playground from the visiting school and um, I, I guess they, they, maybe they saw me playing, but then I got up high on the monkey bars. They didn't see me anymore. And I hear one of the kids say, hey, where's that ugly kid? And I was like, man, who are they talking about, right? Well, then it dawned on me, I was the only other kid on the playground. And I realized they were talking about me. And probably all of you have stories like that where somebody said something to you or about you. Maybe you were in earshot. Maybe you heard about them talking about you. Maybe someone just to your face has said some things that it's like it just kind of gets like under your skin. Do you know what I'm talking about? They say something about you or to you, and it just bothers you. And what happens is... In life, there are other moments that come along and it like hits that wound again where someone has said something to you. And it's like if you've ever had a splinter in your hand, right, and you just can't get it out, but it's like festering up and the pain is building, right? And then someone comes along and they say, hey, how's it going? And they shake your hand and you're like, ah, right? Because the, it's just, they have no idea that they've hit a very sensitive area for you. And every one of us probably has some areas like that in our lives where a word that someone has said has gotten into us and someone else comes along and they say something that hits that same spot and you react. It was the very first time that I remember experiencing rejection. Have you ever felt rejected before? Probably have. Probably everybody in the room has experienced rejection before. See, we're in a series right now called Soul Care, and Soul Care is the Christ centered process of applying God's truth to the brokenness of my soul. That's what it is. It's, it's taking the good news about Jesus and all that He's done for us and, and, and not leaving it as like this theological abstraction. Or, you know, my hope for eternal life, heaven someday. But it's taking the truth of Jesus and bringing it down into the, the dirt and the brokenness and the woundedness and all the, the stuff in us. And bringing it down deep 
into our hearts. Today, I want to talk to us about approval addiction or the approval lie, approval addiction. That's what we're talking about today. See, rejection is a form of communication. It may come in the form of an outburst of anger, a disgusted look, an impatient answer, or a social snub. But the message of rejection is always disrespect, right? It's, it's low appreciation. It's a lack of value. When someone rejects you, it communicates something to you, and we've all experienced it. And um, here's the thing with rejection. It seems like somebody would say something that kind of tears you down, and it would make you be like, oh, you know, I'm not that awesome after all. And it would make you like get humble and get over yourself, right? That's what you would think would happen, right? If you take enough knocks in life, then all of a sudden you're going to be humble, and you're going to think less about yourself and and be more well-rounded, okay? But here's what happens, the exact opposite. That's why God never demeans people into his kingdom. Have you noticed that about Jesus? He doesn't use that tool because that tool is ineffective to bring about genuine humility inside of a person. See, what happens is that we become more self-focused because somebody said something that felt painful, it rejected us, and we just like, we can't get over it. It's like all of a sudden we're turned in on that whole thing, and it's like we're, we're so concerned about it. We, we become more self-focused. Uh, my mom passed away about six months ago, and we had a funeral service for her, and my, uh, my family, immediate family, had a graveside service. And at the graveside service, my aunt, her older sister, uh, shared about my mom See, my mom was hilarious. She was famous for not getting ready before like 11.30 or 12 in the day, okay? Like noon, she's like, okay, I think I'm ready to go out, okay? Because that was just how she rolled. And it's not that she slept in. She would get up at like six o'clock in the morning and it would just take her that long. And we, we as a family, we learned to work around it. Like I remember my sister to try to schedule her wedding in the morning. She could save like thousands of dollars if she had a morning wedding. And my mom said, you must not want me to come. That's what my mom told her. Kind of like, hey, the train leaves at noon, and if, and if it's before noon, train ain't going to be there. You know what I'm saying? Like, this is how we roll. And we always, you know, we would laugh about it. We would make fun. We would, you know, joke about, well, we can't do anything until afternoon, right? My aunt shares a story that when my mom was a little girl, she had a lazy eye. And she was going to school in the middle of the the big segregation integration thing. If y'all remember that from American history, it's a terrible time. And she was kind of caught in the crossfire of all of that time period. And so she would go to school and they would make her wear like the patch on the eye. The doctor said, this is the only way to fix it. She'd wear the patch. And already there was like this vindictiveness in the schools. And my aunt said she got made fun of Every single day at school, somebody would say something terrible about her or to her. And my aunt said, that's why 
for all these years. She wanted to take her time getting ready because she didn't want to present something to everyone else where they might say something hurtful that would hit the wound. Just curious, what would it be for you? What would that wound be for you? How have you experienced rejection in your life? You see, the lie of approval results in the fear of rejection. That's what it results in. Last week, we talked about um, the, the fear of failure. Well, this week, this, this rejection, this approval thing creates a fear of rejection. We don't want to be rejected, and it can manifest and become, like we've talked about, extremely self-focused. It, it manifests in our insecurities, our inability to give and to receive love. It can make us distant people, like we're unwilling to open up. We could be nice and cordial, but there's like a wall, and you're not getting past the wall, right? There's a distance because we're unwilling to open up and reveal our inner thoughts and motives because if I do, someone's going to reject me again. It can make us superficial, like we're surface level, and it leaves us isolated and lonely. That's what happens, the fear of rejection creates the wall where we'll stay behind and we'll stay isolated. We'll stay lonely. It makes us feel unloved. It can manifest as feeling unwanted or just unaccepted. If, if we, that very first week we had a picture of a mirror with all these sticky notes of these kind of like negative words and maybe it'd be one of those words of unwanted, unloved, unaccepted. We react to this approval lie and the fear of rejection by projecting a cool, impervious exterior, like calm, collected, I'm cool, I don't need you. That's how I roll. We could react by avoiding everything. We could say no to every request that's made of us. No. Or the exact opposite. I don't want you to reject me, so I'm going to say yes to every request that you make of me. It can, um, we, we can react by people-pleasing, by being easily manipulated by others, by peer pressure. Probably all of us, if we're honest, could say, like, if, if I could go back and, like, pull some skeletons out of my, my sin closet. The, the, re, the reason why they're in there is because all my friends were doing it and I didn't want to miss out. I didn't want to be uncool. I didn't want to be rejected. And how many of us have things in our past that we, would, we wish we could just erase those regrets because of peer pressure in our lives? It can, uh, we can react by trying to impress others by changing how we dress or speak in a certain group of people. Have you ever done that before? Oh yeah? Oh, I've done it before. I've got some phases in my life. I have my ghetto rap phase. I have my kicker phase. Now I'm, a, I'm in a pastor phase apparently. I don't know what this is. It's not impressive, so I guess I'm over that now. Um, but changing how we dress and speak in certain groups of people. It can, we can react by becoming nervous and uncomfortable around others, 
constantly worrying about what other people might think about us, being overly sensitive to criticism, becoming defensive. We could react by being domineering, like I'm just gonna take over this whole thing. I'm gonna dominate this. I'm gonna make sure that you don't have an opportunity to reject me. It could be rejecting others before they reject you. It's like, I'm gonna pre-sabotage this relationship because I know that every time I get close to somebody, they sabotage me with rejection, so I'm gonna go ahead and strike early. We can bait other people to reject us. We can put all of the, all of the bad stuff out in front of them and be like, see, I'm just waiting for you to reject me. It is a deep, deep thing inside of our hearts, this approval lie and this rejection, and it makes us more self-focused. And here's the thing. We talked about how the desert fathers and mothers believed that um, Jesus' temptation in the wilderness was their template for spiritual warfare, meaning that there was, there was a spiritual attack that, was, that were lies being planted into your heart, your mind, your soul, and that's how spiritual warfare looks, not like a demon shows up and you're like, ah, like he tried to kill me. No, it's like, no, he's lying to you constantly like a drip in the back of your mind. Same thought over and over and over again, I hear it, rejected, unloved, unwanted, approval. John 10.10, 10, Jesus tells us the whole you know, MO of the devil. He comes to steal, kill, and destroy, period. There's nothing else he does. To steal, kill, and destroy. But I've come to give you life, and life more abundantly. I've come to destroy the works of the devil. And Jesus knows that the most dangerous follower, the the most dangerous disciple is the one who's rooted in his identity in Christ. The most dangerous disciple to the kingdom of darkness is the one who knows I'm deeply loved, fully approved, fully accepted. Full, I mean, I am, I'm one with the Lord through Jesus. Like it, that is the most dangerous person on planet earth to the schemes of the enemy. And so this series may sound like self-focused, but it's not. It's Christ-focused, and I think he wants to set us free so we can serve him unhindered. Unhindered. We're going to be in Romans chapter 5, if you want to start turning there with me. This is the Apostle Paul. We looked at Romans chapter 3 last week. And we talked about justification. If you were to take that word justification and trace it throughout Romans, that's the whole theme. Paul comes around to it over and over and over again. And he's going to add another word that's a theological, doctrinal word that I think it's important for us to understand. I want us to grasp it so that we can apply it to the area of the approval lie and rejection. Romans chapter 5, starting in verses 6, going through 11... He says, for while we were still helpless at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For rarely will someone die for a just person. 
Though for a good person, perhaps someone might even dare to die. Verse 8, but God proves his own love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. How much more then, since we have now been declared righteous by his blood, will we be saved through him from wrath? For if, while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, then how much more, having been reconciled, will we be saved by his life? Verse 11, and not only that, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received this reconciliation. This is the word of the Lord. So Paul, the Apostle Paul's writing this letter to this mixed group of people. We talked about this last week. And to them, he's explaining justification that it's only by faith. It's not by observing the Mosaic law. That, that was, a, a, it was God's way of revealing our need for salvation. Okay, so he gives us the law, and the law reveals sin. And we're like, ah, I have sin. And from the beginning, Old Testament, even into today and until the Lord returns, there has been, always will be forgiveness from God by faith. In Jesus. And so Paul's expounding this, and he says that we were helpless, right? He says at the right time, meaning there was a moment in history where it was the most advantageous moment for God, who had this plan from the beginning of time to bring his son Jesus onto the planet. That, that if you look at how the Roman world had kind of solidified this massive kingdom, that language was a, 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 a uni more universal language at that moment. That it was the key time, a right time, for Christ to die for us, for the ungodly. And he says that God proves his own love for us and that while we were still sinners, we talked about that last week, we did nothing to deserve this, right? We were still in this state. We were sinful, we were ungodly, we were enemies. And in that moment, that's when Jesus steps in to save us. And then he uses this word reconciled. And he kind of uses it three different times in the passage. Here's the first thing that I want us to understand today. That we are radically reconciled to God through faith in Christ. You are radically reconciled to God through faith in Christ. And here's what you need to understand. The gospel medicine for approval addiction is reconciliation. Let me say it again. The gospel medicine for the approval addiction is reconciliation. That word reconciliation, it means being uh, brought back into fellowship with God. We were watching a movie as a family, and it was one of those movies where, you know, this couple is about to get married, and then he leaves her at the altar, and you're like, ah, what's going on? There's all this brokenness and pain and heartache and all this kind of stuff. And then slowly, of course, throughout the film, they come back together and their families reunited. And at the end, we're just like, ah. Everyone in the room is like, this is the most amazing thing to be brought back together. 
And that's what the word reconciliation means. That there was this rift in the relationship between you and your creator, your father. And that he, he makes a way for us to come back together with him to be reconciled through faith in Christ. That word means restored to favor, restored to friendship or harmony. And Jesus told his disciples, I no longer call you servants. I call you what? Friends. Friends. Did you know that through Jesus, God calls you friend? Like if you, if you have faith in Jesus, this Lord, Messiah, he's it, he's the one, through him, God looks at you and he sees his friend, his friend. Paul says in verse 10, while we were his enemies, he did this for us. Meaning, we weren't even like friendly towards him yet. Does that make sense? We were reconciled to God through the death of his son. You see, apart from Christ, we were separated by our sins. We were were separated from relationship by our sins. Yet through Christ, God has brought us back in to fellowship. And in verse 11, if you look at that, I just want you to see this. He says, and not only that, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, meaning this relationship is restored in such a way that we can like rejoice in him through whom we have now received, we've now received this reconciliation. Meaning, if you believe in Christ, it's already done for you. You are his friend. And it's not because you're awesome. <laughs> it's because God is awesome. And your translation in verse 11 may say we've now received this atonement. That word could be translated two different ways, atonement or reconciliation. If you hear that word, here's what the word atonement means. Think of it this way. As you spell the word A-T-O-N-E, at one. That Jesus offers himself sacrificially to make you at one with God, to atone for all of our sins, our history that we've been talking about, all of our our sinful mistakes, regrets, rebellions, all the things that we have on our list. We have now been atoned through Jesus. We are radically reconciled to God through faith in Christ. Now, last week we talked about the theological word of justification, which was a legal declaration of God in which the ungodly are declared righteous and where justification is legal, reconciliation is relational. It's relational. Romans 5, 1, if you were to back up at the beginning of this chapter, he says, therefore, since we've been declared righteous by faith, we have peace with God. Romans 5, 5, right before we read, he says that God's love has been poured out in our hearts through the Holy Spirit who is given to us, meaning 
God is, is your friend and he's poured out his spirit, his love into you because your relationship is now at one through Jesus. You are in this union with God. Second thing you need to understand, Christ's radical reconciliation means our complete acceptance by God. It means our complete acceptance by God. The approval lie results in insecurity, right? Because people's opinions of us are always changing, right? One day or one season of your life, you may feel like, I feel so loved by people. It's amazing. Like we, we honor each other. We, we, we care for each other. We encourage one another. And then there may be another time in your life where it's like, I, like we are always not, like our relationship's not hitting correctly. And I always feel like criticized. I always feel demeaned. Or I always feel, you know, we have moments in our lives. And if we're basing our value, our worth, our identity on the changing approval of people, then we're, then we're like the roller coaster, up and down and up and down. But in the salvation of Jesus, we have something different. We have complete acceptance by God. So of all the people on the planet who could say a word that would really mean something to you, okay, how much more significant is it that God himself says to you, completely accepted by me? I mean, your dog could turn on you, but if Jesus loves you and God accepts you, you're gonna be all right. Does that make sense? Your mom could turn on you. And guess what? If Jesus, if God himself says, accepted by me, you're accepted. Your spouse, your best friend, your pastor, I'm not going to turn on you, I promise. Your Your church member, you might turn on me, don't turn on me. But if you did, guess what? I'm accepted by the most high God whose word creates worlds. His word created the heavens and the earth. It speaks things into existence. And that word says to you, if you believe in Jesus, completely accepted by me. Wow. That's crazy. And so to build our lives on the approval of other people is to use Jesus' metaphor like building our house on the sand. It's gonna fall. I love the parable of the prodigal son. We won't read it, we don't have time today, but in the story that Jesus casts, so a parable is a story that he tells, it's not based on real events, but he's illustrating something about God. And there's a father who has two sons, and one of the sons says, give me my inheritance now. And he takes that money, he leaves home, and he goes and he spends it all on prostitutes and wild living, and he winds up 
I mean like face down in the mud. He's actually caring for pigs and he's feeding slop to the pigs. And for a Jewish audience, that would be like super disgusting, okay? For us in Houston, it's more like cockroaches, okay? That's like our level of like, ugh, right? That, that's what it'd be like for them. And he's just like feeding the pigs and he's wanting to eat the food that he's feeding. That's like how low he is. And he thinks to himself, I bet if I went home, I could at least be a slave in the house of my God. I mean, a house of my father. So he prepares a speech and he starts walking home and the father sees him from a long way off. And when the father sees him, he runs towards him. And he, he wraps his arms around him. He welcomes him. He kisses him. He puts a robe on him. He puts his ring on him. And he's like, you know, kill the, the fattened calf. Like, let's, let's have a party because my son who was dead is alive again. He's returned. And what I love about the story is it illustrates the relational extreme of God. That a father, Jesus is telling the story to say something about God. He says, when you turn to him and believe in Jesus, he runs at you and he wraps his arms around you and he completely accepts you. He brings you right in. This radical reconciliation means our complete acceptance by God. It's an unbreakable bond because it was never based on your performance. It was never based on your perfect behavior, you being the perfect follower of God. It was always based on the finished work of the cross of Jesus. It's unbreakable bond. Through this bond, Jesus says to you, I will never leave you or abandon you. I will, I will be with you to the end of the age. So, when I live from the acceptance of Jesus, I can rejoice in my relationship with God rather than trying to earn acceptance from him. Does that make sense? When you read your Bible, you're not thinking, I'm going to read my Bible because if I do, God's going to accept me finally. No. It was always through Jesus. And so when you read it, you can say, I read it today as a fully accepted son that is completely united to the Father and that you, God, are already with me. You accept me completely and you want to speak to me today. It's different. When I live from the acceptance of Jesus, I have nothing to prove to you to make you accept me. When I live from the acceptance of Jesus, I can be led by God's conviction instead of ruled by man's rejection. Does that make sense? I can be led by God's conviction. I can do some things that might even be like, ah, uh, people might reject me. But I'm led by his conviction and not ruled by man's rejection. You see, the wound of rejection turns us inward, but God's acceptance through Christ turns us outward. Third, last point. Only people who have experienced radical acceptance through Christ are able to be radically accepting of others. 
Can I say that again? That's a mouthful. Only those who experience the radical acceptance of Christ are able to be radically accepting of others. There's a passage in Philippians chapter two. I think I have this on a slide if you guys wanna go to that. It's uh, verses three and four. I'll read it to you. It says, do nothing out of selfish ambition, nothing out of selfish ambition, or conceit, your translation might say vain conceit, but in humility, consider others as more important than yourselves. Everyone should look not to his own interest, but rather to the interest of others. That sounds amazing, doesn't it? To live in a community like that, where you can do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, which is like being turned in on, your, on yourself. But in humility, consider others as more important than yourself. Everyone should look not to his own interest, but rather to the interest of others. That's a communal vision, and that's, in com- that's completely impossible unless you receive the reconciliation that Jesus offers you. You see, our culture proposes a similar vision of community, and it uses words like inclusion, intolerance, and acceptance. It, it seems to increasingly demand those things, right? You better be tolerant. You better be inclusive. And, and you'd better be accepting. But the thing is, in the very place that it demands acceptance, it is incapable of offering it. Does that make sense? In the very place that our culture demands inclusion and acceptance, it's incapable of offering it unless you think like I think. You vote like I vote. You value what I value. You celebrate what I celebrate. And you're angry about what I'm angry about. And if we're on the same page there, I'm tolerant of you. I accept you. But if you're not, I'm unable to offer the very thing that I'm demanding from you. My point is this. If you want to see a community that looks like this, the only way is through the gospel of Jesus. It's the only way. You're canceled if you don't, if you don't agree with me. I can literally mute you in my feed and you don't exist to me anymore. Isn't that crazy? We're unable to give what we demand. See, that version of acceptance isn't really acceptance at all. It's totalitarianism veiled as virtue. It's darkness veiled as light. And against the rejection-ruled world where everyone says, get in line, this is how we think, this is how we do things, come on into the group, we'll show you how to live. In the rejection-ruled world, the kingdom of God and the church of Jesus should stand in stark, in beautiful contrast. We are to be a contrast community to the systems of our world that do not really work. How? 
Great question. This radical reconciliation produces the word that's in that uh, verse, genuine humility. Because when we're ruled by rejection, we're turned in on ourselves. When we receive reconciliation, we're turned outward to God and to others. I no longer need to be self-focused or self-centered or selfishly ambitious or conceited because God has accepted me in Christ. I have nothing to prove. Genuine humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's not taking all those wounds and being like, I'm just a loser, I'm nothing. It's like, no, 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 that's not genuine humility because it keeps you focused on you. Genuine humility is thinking of yourself less. I can radically accept you and I can consider you as more important than myself. How? Because I'm free no longer to look to my own interests because Jesus has looked after me. Do do, do you hear that? I can love you and accept you and I can tolerate whatever comes with you, whatever baggage you're holding, we can walk through that together because I'm not looking out for my own interests because God, who is God of gods, has looked after my interests in Jesus. Jesus is genuinely looking out for your best interest. God wants what's best for you. And if I'm with him, if I'm his disciple, then I want what he wants for you, which is your best interests. And so I will look out for your interests too. How glorifying to God is that? If we as a church could embody this because of the reconciliation of Jesus, we would be doing some amazing stuff. Amen? I mean, that would be amazing to live this. But we can't skip to it. We can't skip to the community part. Because what's always going to get hung up is that thing in you. And I can, I'll be good until you hit that thing. And then we're not good anymore. See, we must each individually deal with our own brokenness before God, and we must find our acceptance through Jesus alone. Through Jesus alone. The well-being of our families, the well-being of our church, the well-being of our greater community will depend upon this very thing. There's no other way. We must settle the issue at the cross. So let me close with this question. Will you trust in man's approval rather than God's approval? Will you bow at the mirror or at the cross? Will you bow at the mirror or at the cross? What do we do about this? Great question. First is I think we have to address that wound, whatever that thing is that's gotten into you. The place where you have felt rejection, I think you need to address it. You need to just acknowledge it. Number one, right? there's something in me, and it goes back to when that person said this, and my whole life I've been just hung up on this. 
and it still bothers me, and it's dumb, and I don't think it should bother me. I'm a grown man, and like some kids saying you're ugly on the playground shouldn't bother you anymore. But guess what? It bothers me. Can we acknowledge that? Can you acknowledge whatever that thing is? Maybe it was something that a parent said or a, or a coach or a mentor or a sibling or just or something happened and it got into you and it's like you're all these years down the road and you know it shouldn't bother me anymore. But every day I hear the drip in my mind. The same thing said over and over again. We must address the wound. How is this manifest in your life? What does it produce? What are the insecurities that are coming out of this thing? What's it causing you to do? Let's address it. The second thing, so important, we must receive the reconciliation through whom we have now received reconciliation. We must receive the truth. And here's the thing. You can think, I'm reconciled to God. And it's like this big generic truth that hangs out there in your theological mindset somewhere. But then it's like when it comes to that thought that's in your head every day, it's like, no, no, no. I I know you believe it out there, but do you believe it like in that place, in the place where you have experienced rejection? Because you must apply it in that place before it will set you free. Which God's truth always sets us free when we receive it into the place where we are in bondage. We must apply that reconciliation where we've been ruled by rejection. And the good news is, the, the best thing about a lie is that is not true. Do you know that? The best thing about a lie is that it's not true. So whatever word got into you, you need to hear the better word. I accept you. Thus says the Lord. How will I know if I've received the truth? How will I know? I know that I'm living from reconciliation when I no longer react based upon rejection. Does that make sense? It's like daily. Today, all I hear is that drip in my mind. And today I've got to apply the reconciliation of Jesus to that place. Because if I don't, someone's going to say something, I'm going to go, bleh. (laughs) I'm going to react. You might want to ask somebody close to you just to remind you of this truth, okay? I'm going to close with a story. I found this story this week. And it's a true story, which these are always the most fascinating ones. So on December 26, 1944, the Japanese army sends Second Lieutenant Hiro Onoda to the Philippine island of Lubang. His orders were to fight on indefinitely. I think I have a slide for this. If you guys want to, uh, you can see what this person looked like. That's him. You see the man handing the sword over? That's him. That is uh, Hiro Anoda. His orders were to fight on indefinitely, and word never reached him several months later when World War II ended. He didn't know it was over yet. And so for 30 more years, 30, 
Okay, if you're, if you're younger than 30, just raise your hand for me right now. If you're younger than 30, okay, so like longer than your whole lifetime, this guy continues fighting in this island of Lubang. So he continues fighting in the context of a war that existed only in his mind. Wow. He lived in hiding. He came out at night to steal food from the villages. And he even shot at people now and then. He was, he was like sold out. Um, 10 years into hiding, he found a newspaper article about himself, but he thought it was a trick to get him to surrender. He's like, I'm not falling for that one, right? <laughs> the Philippine government dropped leaflets into the jungle asking him to come out but again, he would not believe them. They brought loudspeakers in and shouted, Onoda, the war is over. And again, he still would not believe it. And he fought on until 1974 when the Japanese government sent in his old commanding officer, Major Tanaguchi, who ordered Onoda to surrender and then he finally gave up. All these people were telling him the truth, but he couldn't hear it until his commanding officer tells him the truth, and finally he can receive it. Whatever word has gotten into you, wherever you've experienced rejection, I want to tell you it's a lie. But you may not be able to hear that from me. You may need to hear it from your commanding officer today. From the very word of the most high God. Now we have received reconciliation. The war is over. The battle for your acceptance is finished. The matter is settled. This lie of approval has held you for too long. The truth is that through Christ, you are reconciled and completely accepted by God. Hiro Onoda spent 30 more years than he needed to in that jungle. Don't spend another day or another year believing the lie of rejection. Surrender and receive the truth of Jesus' radical reconciliation. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Renaissance Church Sermon Podcast. To contact us or find out more information, visit rin-church.org.